You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Today we're reading out of Acts 16. Um, I'll read it in English. And then my wife, Raisa, will read it in Spanish. Um, It's verses 11 through 40. Uh, Please stand for the reading of God's word. From Troas, we put into the sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had been gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met there by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains became loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We're all here! The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly and without trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. The word of God for the people of God. Buenas tardes. Conversación de Lidia en Filipos. Zarpando de Troas, navegando directamente a San Mortracia, y al día siguiente a Neápolis, de ahí fuimos a Filipos, que es una colonia romana y la ciudad principal de ese distrito de Macedonia. En esa ciudad nos quedamos varios días. El sábado salimos a las afueras de la ciudad y fuimos por la orilla del río, donde esperábamos encontrar un lugar de oración. Nos sentamos y nos pusimos a conversar con las mujeres que se habían reunido. Una de ellas, que se llamaba Lidia, adoraba a Dios. Era de la ciudad de Tiatira y vendía telas de púrpura. Mientras escuchaba, el Señor le abrió el corazón para que respondiera al mensaje de Pablo. Cuando fue bautizada con su familia, nos hizo la siguiente invitación. Si ustedes me consideran creyente del Señor, vengan a hospedarse en mi casa. Y nos persuadió. Pablo y Silas en la cárcel. Una vez, cuando íbamos al lugar de oración, nos salió al encuentro una joven esclava que tenía un espíritu de adivinación. Con sus poderes ganaba mucho dinero para sus amos. Nos seguía a Pablo y a nosotros gritando, «Esos hombres son siervos del Dios Altísimo y les anuncia a ustedes el camino de la salvación». Así continuó durante muchos días. Por fin Pablo se molestó tanto que se volvió y reprendió al espíritu. En el nombre de Jesucristo te ordeno que salgas de ella. En aquel mismo momento, el Espíritu la dejó. Cuando los amos de la joven se dieron cuenta de que se le habían esfumado la esperanza de ganar dinero, echaron mano a Pablo y a Silas y los arrestaron, y los arrastraron a la plaza, ante las autoridades. Los presentaron ante los magistrados y dijeron, «Estos hombres son judíos y están alborotando a nuestra ciudad» enseñando costumbres que a los romanos se nos prohíbe admitir o practicar. Entonces, la multitud se amotinó contra Pablo y Silas, y los magistrados mandaron que se les arrancaran la ropa y los azotaran. Después de darles muchos golpes, los, e los echaron a la cárcel y ordenaron al carcelero que los custodiara, sorry, custodiara con la mayor seguridad. Al recibir tal orden, éste los metió en el calabozo interior y les sujetó los pies en el cepo. A eso de la medianoche, Pablo y Silas se pusieron a orar y a cantar himnos a Dios, y los otros presos los escuchaban. 
De repente, se produjo un terremoto tan fuerte que la cárcel se estremeció hasta sus cimientos. Al instante se abrieron todas las puertas y a los presos se les soltaron las cadenas. El carcelero despertó y al ver que las puertas de la cárcel de par en par sacó la espada y estuvo a punto de matarse porque pensaba que los presos se habían escapado. Pero Pablo le gritó, no te hagas ningún daño, todos estamos aquí. El carcelero pidió luz, entró precipitadamente y se echó temblando a los pies de Pablo y Silas. Luego los sacó y les preguntó, «Señores, ¿qué tengo que hacer para ser salvo?» «Creer en el, el Señor Jesús, así tú y tu familia serán salvos», le contestaron. Luego les expusieron la palabra de Dios a él y a todos los demás que estaban en su casa. A esas horas de la noche, el carcelero se los llevó y, la, y les lavó las heridas. Enseguida fueron bautizados él y toda su familia. El carcelero los llevó a su casa les sirvió comida y se alegró mucho junto a toda su familia por haber creído en Dios. Al amanecer, los magistrados mandaron a unos guardias al carcelero con esa orden. ¡Suelta a esos hombres! Entonces le informó a Pablo. Los magistrados han ordenado que los suelte, así que pueden irse. Vayan en paz. Pero Pablo respondió a los guardias. ¿Cómo? ¿A nosotros? que somos ciudadanos romanos, que nos han azotado públicamente y sin proceso alguno, y nos han echado a la cárcel, ¿ahora quieren expulsarnos escondidas? Nada de eso. Que vengan ellos personalmente a escoltarnos hasta la salida. Los guardias comunicaron la respuesta a los magistrados. Estos se asustaron cuando oyeron que Pablo y Silas eran ciudadanos romanos, así que fueron a presentarles sus disculpas. Los escoltaron desde la cárcel pidiéndoles que se fueran de la ciudad. Al salir de la cárcel, Pablo y Silas se dirigieron a la casa de Lidia, donde se, die, se vieron con los hermanos y los animaron. Después se fueron. Esta es la palabra de Dios. All right, we're looking at the uh, Acts of the Apostles, uh, obviously, um, and uh, today. Uh, is the day where um, the uh, invading uh, Lord Jesus, uh, who ascended to the right hand of God in the very first chapter uh, and is, is beginning to take over the world um, from this position um, of in the unseen realm. Um, you know, you can't see him today, um, but uh, after he rose from the grave, uh, after, after having been crucified, Jesus actually entered into Uh, the upside-down realm, and through a, through a portal into this kind of other world um, where he now reigns, you know, from just the other side of my hand through this thin membrane. He is over there. He is uh, ruling over this uh, earth from the, the invisible realm. But uh, throughout the book of Acts, he is breaking into the visible realm uh, through these things called signs and wonders, which we see two of those today. Uh, today, we see... Uh, kind of like the, uh, the D-Day of the Allied invasion of Normandy um, in World War II, where for the first time uh, the Allied forces landed in Europe, um, in continental Europe, so that they could take back Europe from uh, the Axis powers, the evil empire, the Nazi empire. And uh, that's what's happening today, where for the first time uh, this liberating army of Christ, which is spearheaded by Paul and Silas, they are um, entering Europe. This is the first time that the The gospel ever uh, entered into Europe, continental Europe. Um, and 
there's this one big difference. Uh, the Allies, with the Allied invasion, they only had 130,000 troops. Whereas Paul and Silas have uh, Jesus and all of his armies. And so um, Europe is at a much greater disadvantage in this case. And what he does uh, is Jesus kind of creates a beachhead, as they did uh, on the beaches of Normandy. And he creates this little colony. Uh, and he begins with these three very surprising people. Uh, namely, a, a very wealthy businesswoman uh, who is uh, a God-fearer, not Jewish, but also uh, she's turned her back on the Gentile world of paganism and she is curious about God. So it's her, her household, a slave girl, and then number three, uh, most surprising of all maybe, is this Roman, hardened Roman war veteran who's probably racist. He probably fought against the Jews in battles. A lot of uh, jailers were former veterans. It's a tough guy. Um, this is kind of like a type of guy that would have had like a Ford F-150 black truck and don't tread on me, um, you know, tattoo. So this is, this is the church. Those three people. Can you imagine that Jesus would say, I want those three. And they're in the leading city in Macedonia, uh, which is kind of like Greece, verse 12, a Roman colony. This, is, this Philippi was a very proud Roman city. Uh, they were... A colony of Rome in the way that, um, let's say, Jamestown was a colony of England. And uh, Jesus is starting a colony of the heavens, which is unlike these uh, imperialistic empires setting up colonies. Um, Jesus is actually doing the opposite of dominating. He is liberating. And we see that in this passage. So I want to look at uh, the, the three people who start the church, the people of the church, and then the power of the church that actually makes it happen because you would not think that uh, these three individuals could actually uh, create Western civilization in Europe, essentially, is what they did. Um, but we're going to see there's this power that they're carrying with them uh, that's like, it's like an earthquake, but it's an earthquake of, of love and sacrificial love and grace and love of the enemy and um, giving yourself over for other people. So first of all, the people of the church... Um, as soon as Paul, so last week we looked at the Jerusalem council and they finally decided in Jerusalem, we're not going to make the, the Gentiles be circumcised. They don't have to be Jewish first. All they need is Jesus to be saved. So with that new power in hand, uh, the gospel of free grace, uh, Paul and Silas and Barnabas leave and uh, actually they pick up Luke along the way because you notice the it changes to we. Uh, it changes from they to we in this passage. So Luke has come into the picture somewhere along the line. He might have been from Philippi. Um, but anyway, Paul and Barnabas and Silas and, Timothy and, and John left Jerusalem to go into Turkey, modern Turkey. Paul and Barnabas have a huge fight about whether John Mark is brave enough to take with him because he abandoned them last time. He was kind of a coward. And Paul's like, he cannot go with us. And Barnabas is like, no, he's got to go with us. Um, and they, they have this huge fight, and it was such an explosive fight that it sent them in opposite directions. And so Paul and Silas go west into Turkey, and then they try to stop in a couple of cities, and Jesus waves them further. He's like, no, don't stop. Uh, keep coming farther west. I want you to go to Europe. They had not planned to go to Europe, but twice Jesus says, keep coming, keep coming. And then they, when they get to the western tip of Turkey... Uh, they see this vision of a European man who's calling them across the Aegean Sea into continental Europe. And so it says in verse 11, they set sail from Troas 
which is in Turkey, and they made a direct voyage to Samothrace. They enter into Europe, which would have been um, wild, uh, pagan, Gentile, untamed, uh, very much non-Jewish. This is like the Wild West for someone who was from Jerusalem. And Jesus had targeted Philippi the second they left Jerusalem. He was taking them west into Philippi. And when they get there, there's no synagogue um, because they're in the Wild West. So there's no synagogue. And so they go and they find the closest thing to a synagogue. So in verse 13, it says on the Sabbath day, uh, they were probably walking around the city looking for any activity that seemed like it might be Jewish. Sure enough, we went outside the gate to the riverside and there was a place of prayer. I guess they had heard that there was a place of prayer there. We, we had supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down. This is now Luke, Paul, and Silas. And we spoke to the women. They were all women who had come together. And so imagine this, you know, they're cross-legged in the grass. They're chanting psalms. Uh, they're praying. Uh, the sound of rushing water. This is like the very first time you've had a gathering of uh, these people under the banner of Christ uh, in Europe. And Lydia is the, the leader of this group. So she is a, um, a very wealthy uh, businesswoman who sold purple cloth, which would be like selling uh, a Porsche or Maseratis or Rolls Royces. She was dealing you know, with the upper echelon of Philippi. Um, she ran a very large household. Because back then, if you were a small business owner, you would also do that in your house, and all of your employees would be in your house with you. So the person number one that he chooses is a, is a high-powered businesswoman, and it simply says that he quietly opened her heart. And notice the action that she had to have her heart open. Faith is never something that we do on our own. It is something that we have to do with God. He has to come and open our heart before we can believe. And so it says God opened her heart and she believed. And in verse 15, it says, uh, and this is, Presbyterians love this verse, okay? 15, she was baptized, but not just her. Her entire small business was baptized at the very same moment. Why do we love that? We love that because Presbyterians baptize babies. And we say there were probably some, there weren't probably, there were definitely babies in that household. It was a huge group. You had, uh, it was like Down Abbey. You know, you had uh, servants, uh, salespeople, grandmother, grandfather, teens, infants, all these people like in this with atriums and pools and gardens, just this beautiful household, very wealthy woman would have been like pools, you know, um, you would have heard the sound of water. If you've seen a Roman uh, household, they're just, they're gorgeous. They're very much outside. They're built outside, kind of like a Spanish villa. And they were all baptized immediately. They were immediately all baptized, the entire household. And, um, Baptism is not so much our own expression of our faith. It is God just stamping us as owned by the king. Part of the rebel alliance now. So all those little children were now stamped as part of God's. Uh, we don't know what they believed. They, they probably didn't have any beliefs because they were an infant. But they were like, like the L on Lydia's clothing line. You know, her purple clothing line. These people were baptized by God. That's the first person. The second person that they bring into that household, which is now all under the banner of Christ, is a pythoness. Okay, that's what it says literally in Greek. Pythoness. Um, verse 16, the translation says a slave girl with a spirit of divination. Uh, but it really is uh, the pythoness. Uh, they, these people 
Uh, these people who owned her, uh, they, they made a lot of money because she could tell the future. She was a fortune teller. And it was a real power. She wasn't a fake. She really could tell the future. And they made a lot of money. Uh, and the reason it was called a spirit of a python is because in the Oracle of Delphi, they had a python. That was a big part of the Oracle. And if you know any Greek myths, you know about the Oracle of Delphi. And so she was part of that system uh, where they would predict the future and they would um, therefore pay a lot of money. And she had these handlers, these owners, these traffickers. They found this girl with enormous spiritual power, kind of like a, like a Hermione Granger, like incredible spiritual insight. And they built a startup company around her. She was their property. Uh, and they used her. And the sad thing was that she was possessed by this spirit. It wasn't a good thing. She was dominated by it. It was not something that was benefiting her life. But Jesus looked at her and he saw the glory inside of her and he had very big plans for her. And he said, she's going to be one of the ones that brings my kingdom to Europe. And so he's like, I want a businesswoman first and I want a visionary. I'm going to start the church with those two. So in verse 17, she followed us screaming, these are servants of the most high God who proclaim the way of salvation. Which sounds innocuous, um, but there was something in that that really annoyed Paul. Maybe, maybe it was like she said it, with a, said it with a mocking voice, you know, like a high-pitched mocking voice, like servants of the Most High God. But whatever it was, she just wouldn't stop crying out. Uh, These are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. And it says in verse 18, Paul became greatly annoyed. And he turned and said, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. This is like the worst evangelistic encounter in history. I mean, he was greatly annoyed. All he wanted to do was get her off his back. And yet it says that it worked. In verse 19, the spirit came out, which just shows that evangelism is not really up to us. The power is not in us at all. The power is in the name of Jesus. And so if you just speak the name of Jesus, the power is all there. Because all he says is come out of her and he's greatly annoyed. He has all the wrong posture towards her. And yet it works. And you would think that everybody would be happy now that this uh, Python S has been liberated by the power of the gospel, who ejected this dark spirit from her and now liberated her to use her powers for good. But it says in verse 19, when her handlers saw their hope for gain was gone, notice how it's based in money, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into... They call it the Agora or the marketplace. Um, Imagine like the Haynes Mall or Thruway, wherever people gather, maybe Bailey Park, but that's where they drag them into the place where money was made, which is very interesting um, that it just shows that greed, greed is the monster that, you know, took over these terrible traffickers and made them angry when this girl was liberated. They didn't just become angry, they became murderous because their property had been taken. Think about Southern Presbyterians in the 1850s. You know, it's very easy to miss this who were slave owners and were furious when slaves were set free. This is something, this monster of greed is something that is in all of us. It was, these people like completely gave in to us, but this is in all of us. Um, Christians have been dominated at the time and the, the slave trade in Rome's economy was bigger than really it had ever been um, in the world. It was 
Um, half the Roman Empire were slaves. It was as important to their economy as electricity is to our economy. And so the mere existence of a community where Paul, Silas, Luke, um, Lydia, her household, and this girl were all one, the mere existence of that community where they were all one in Christ, there was neither slave nor free, no male nor female, no Jew nor Greek, that was very threatening to the powers of Philippi. And so it says in verse 20, uh, these people are disturbing our city. These uh, people who are trying to make money off of this girl are furious, and they're saying that um, this new little church is disturbing the city. And it makes me wonder just how we are disturbing our city. In what ways uh, does our church have this effect? Simply by the customs that we keep. Notice that the people cry out, the mob cries out, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us in verse 21. These people are not keeping the laws. They are breaking the laws. They're advocating customs that are not good. Like, again, like this uh, equality. Um, Breaking down the uh, hierarchies of Rome. Uh, Threatening the entire system uh, of Rome. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us. So even the idea of praying, praying to this one creator God, uh, would be a custom that they would not have felt was lawful. So when we gather to pray... And we pray for forgiveness and reconciliation in families and pray for unity. When we have a unity that is um, disturbing to people, um, that's when uh, the people of God uh, witness to the power of Christ. Or when we we baptize children and say they're owned by God, Uh, they are marked by God, uh, they are not ours primarily. We give them into the hands of God. We let them become part of of this rebel alliance. We we let them be part of a movement that is somewhat dangerous for them. That's, again, that's that's a custom that is not lawful for the city and is disturbing to the city. Or just simply witnessing to his regime that all people are one, uh, that we're not that different from each other, that uh, we have this unity uh, that breaks all the barriers. That is disturbing to the city. So that's the first point, the, the people of the church. That's who God uses to start this church. And I haven't even gotten to the jailer yet. Um, That gets into the power, the power of this church. Verse 24, uh, they put Paul and Silas, after they had been arrested, in the inner prison. So the jailer doesn't just put them in minimum security, but in maximum security prison, in in total darkness, pitch black. And they fasten their feet in stocks. So they have been considered like, public enemy number one. And uh, they're totally stuck. They're in chains. They're in the center of the prison. There's no way out. And that's when uh, the second sign and wonder happened. The first sign and wonder was Christ coming in and liberating this woman uh, from this oppressive spirit. But now, verse 25, at midnight, uh, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, which itself is is a sign and a wonder. The joy that you would sing and Praise God uh, in captivity like that. Um, And then the prisoners were listening to them. Like like they're telling bedtime stories. These people that are in maximum security prison, these very hardened people, criminals, are are sitting there baffled by these songs that these men are singing to this crucified God. They're singing praise to a man. It's Jesus Christ. They're praising him like he's the, the maker of the world, the ruler of the heavens. And when that's happening, as they're praising God and singing, 
the, the heavens just, uh, it's just too much. The heavens explode, and it says there was a great earthquake, verse 26. And this is the third time that there's been a prison break in the book of Acts, where uh, the foundations of the prison, verse 26, were shaken. I think about the whole city being shaken. The foundations were shaken, and immediately the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Just, again, one story after another of liberation. Christ coming to liberate Europe. Uh, liberate the Pythoness. Uh, liberate Paul. And so, liberate the, the jailer who was set free by all this. I mean, it's not just um, the physical, but it's, it's mostly the inner liberation where the real power comes from. It takes nothing for God to open a jail cell. It's, it takes the death of his son to actually liberate a person from bondage to sin. And so, verse 27 When the shocking reality of the unseen realm comes in, the jailer woke up, saw the prison doors were open, and drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. Because back then, if prisoners, if a single prisoner got out, it was the prison warden who had to take his life um, because he would get the death penalty um, because it was such a, a breach of his job description. So this guy imagines that Of course, if the doors are open, the prisoners are going to leave. Why would they not leave? How would they ever not leave? And yet he walks in there and Paul cries out with a loud voice right when he's about to kill himself. Do not harm yourself. We are all here. So Paul not only risked his own life because he could have gotten out, but he got these other prisoners who had been listening to him singing to stay with him. Uh, just the power of, of his love was so persuasive that these people were willing to stay with him in prison. And the jailer walks in and he cannot believe it. He is utterly shaken by this love. Verse 29, he called for the lights. He rushed in and he was trembling with fear. And I think his fear was, was more about the love than fear of Caesar. I mean, he could not, he was, he was terrified of what was happening to him right now. Uh, just the way that love was starting to break into his heart and liberate this angry racist man, um, this hardened war veteran. And verse 30, he falls to his knees and he says, what must I do to be saved? And I think when he's saying saved, he's not thinking about going to heaven. He's thinking about being rescued from his desire to just die. That's what he means by saved there. Just what, what do I have to do to get out of this terrible situation that I'm in right now? So that I could sing in prison or love my captors or lead prisoners to sacrifice themselves. And uh, Paul just simply says, trust in Jesus. He could have gone through a laundry list of things he needed to do. Um, Of course, circumcision is not on that list, thanks to the Jerusalem Council. It's one thing. Trust in Jesus and you'll be completely rescued. Uh, And all of your helpless ruin, racist, war veteran, angry violence, you will be saved if you trust in Jesus. Somebody sent um, a newsletter, um, Coleman Green, who works up in St. Louis uh, at Washington uh, University, he, um, he sent a newsletter out. He's the RUF intern there. It was a quote from Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher. And Spurgeon says, uh, Jesus looks on you with love in all the pollution with which you are disgraced, not at what you ought to be or hope to be, but only in what he is. 
Uh, trust in Jesus. That's all that needs to be done to be saved. That's the power that shakes City Hall and the spiritual earthquake um, that just sends shockwaves through Philippi in Europe. Verse 35, when it was day, the magistrates sent the police and they said, let these men go. Get them out of our city. Uh, we've had problem after problem. Let's get them out of our city. And Paul, um, again, stunningly, he won't leave. Second time, he wouldn't leave. First time he was in the jail, he wouldn't leave because he wanted to witness to the power of Christ, to the jailer. Second time, he can leave. They're asking him to leave the city. They're not going to do anything. They're not going to prosecute him. He won't leave. He's like, I've got to witness to the power of Christ, to the love of Christ. And so he says this very strange thing, which kind of sounds vindictive. Verse 37, uh, you've beaten us publicly without trial. We are Roman citizens, so come yourselves and take us out. And it sounds like he's kind of uh, being snippy and uh, like angry and um, trying to get back at him. But um, that's not why he's doing this. Um, You know, what this shows us is that he never had to go to jail in the first place. He never had to go to jail in the first place because he was a Roman citizen. And if he had told them immediately, I'm a Roman citizen, he would have been allowed to escape jail. And no no negative effects at all. They wouldn't have beaten him. Uh, None of that would have happened. So why did he ever stay silent and and go to prison? Why did he do that? And again, I think the the answer is that he wanted to witness the power of Christ. Uh, He wanted to be able to sing in prison. He wanted to be able to see the signs and wonders happen. He wanted to be able to show this deeply sacrificial love. I know what he didn't want to do is he did not want to raise himself above his new church. He did not want to say, I'm a citizen. You know, Lydia, you're not. Uh, Pythoness, you're not. Probably the jailer wasn't either. So he did not want to raise himself up. He wanted to stay in solidarity with his people. And that's the power. That's the power that built the church, not only in Philippi, but all over Europe. And, uh, you know, the question I ask myself is just how, where, where do I see that power in my life? The power to give up, to disadvantage myself for the good of others. Even others who don't, I don't like. Others who have hurt me. Like where, where is that power that would take a violent, racist prison warden that would cleanse the feet of a Jewish man who he would have absolutely despised. But this man has been so transformed so quickly that in verse 33, after he's baptized, after he believes, he brought Paul and Silas to his house He set food before them, and he washed their wounds, probably including their feet, on his knees before a Jewish person who he would have despised, a Roman jailer, a war veteran, cleansing the wounds of Paul. I mean, that's, that's like the incarnation of the power of Christ. So I think about washing the body parts of someone that you would rather not be touching as an example of what it means to live by this power that can create a church that is so explosive that it takes a city or, or taking the blame to cover for someone at work who has less power than you or just not exercising your rights, you know, if whatever your Roman citizen is, to not play that card, to disadvantage yourself, maybe to help somebody else or even to sing for joy in a place where it looks like there's no way out at all. These are just markers of the power of the love of Christ that took over the city of Philippi, that rocked the city of Philippi. Uh, the one commentary I always read when I prepare these sermons is by uh, 
Tom Wright, great uh, Anglican bishop, probably the greatest New Testament scholar living today. Um, And he says this, he says, the nighttime feast in the jailer's house uh, sets the pattern for the bizarre celebration of God's kingdom from that day till this. The nighttime feast in the jailer's house uh, sets the pattern of this bizarre celebration um, of God's kingdom through this meal, which is what we, we do here. We do it every week. Uh, churches around the whole world do it every week because uh, we are proclaiming the power of the kingdom of God when we take this meal because like the, the jailer washing the feet of Paul, we, in this meal, uh, we, who have, um, we who ought to be disliked and despised by the one who washes our feet, we just sit there and we get cleaned by him. We get served by him. The one that we've betrayed, um, the one that we've mistreated, uh, he comes and he, um, he serves us his own body and blood. And all of our worthiness, uh, unworthiness, all of our pollution, uh, he looks on us with love. Remember, we love these rascals.